Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, term podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. episode of Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I am joined by a fellow mum who has a child with autism. Leah and I really connect on this and it's a really insightful episode because there's so much difference between the USA and the UK when it comes to diagnosing autism. So growing up, I was like bullied a lot um, and all of that stuff kind of influenced my self-esteem because when I was young, I actually didn't know I had learning disabilities. So I I just thought that I was like, you know, kind of incapable, like why can all my peers do all these things that I can't do them? So it wasn't until basically college that I just found it like too much and I felt like, okay, I need to do something or I'm not gonna succeed in college. And I went and pursued some um, diagnoses and that's where I learned that I had all these learning disabilities and all that stuff. And as soon as I learned that, it really like changed my perspective on everything um, because I didn't feel like I was different anymore. I felt like I was unique and I also didn't feel like I was incapable anymore. I felt like I had resources and accommodations and things that I could do. You may be a parent to someone with autism. You may suspect you're autistic or maybe you struggle to learn and you need some tools to help you, you know, really tap into your inner brilliance. If you get any of these, come join us today. Today on the show, I'm joined by Leah McCabe, and she has a master's specialising in human factor psychology. And she is a user experience researcher, founder of Autism Wish, as well as being host of Embracing Autism podcast. Hello there, Leah. Hi, how are you doing? Really good, thank you. Bless you. Now, I know you're going to be talking about something after my own heart because obviously you're the founder of Autism Wish. So, how did your story begin? So, Autism Wish kind of came about out of like a long process, really. It really started with me just kind of from my experience and how my experience then impacted my children's experience. Um, but essentially, I kind of struggled growing up because I have a bunch of like learning disabilities and a whole bunch of issues that are actually very comorbid to autism, like executive dysfunction and all sorts of things. So growing up, I was like bullied a lot um, and all of that stuff kind of influenced my self-esteem because when I was young, I actually didn't know I had learning disabilities. So I, I just thought that I was like, you know, kind of incapable like why can all my peers do all these things that I can't do them so it wasn't until basically college that I just found it like too much and I felt like okay I need to do something or I'm not going to succeed in college 
And I went and pursued some um, diagnoses. And that's where I learned that I had all these learning disabilities and all that stuff. And as soon as I learned that, it really like changed my perspective on everything um, because I didn't feel like I was different anymore. I felt like I was unique. And I also didn't feel like I was incapable anymore. I felt like I had resources and accommodations and things that I could do. So I, I personally found that the diagnosis process was really important for me. And like, for me, I always advocate for early disclosure of any sort of diagnosis because it made a difference for me. So that kind of impacted once I found out that my two girls, they were later diagnosed with autism and they're two and three. So they were diagnosed very early. And so I saw them struggling and they were struggling with a bunch of things with sensory and all that stuff. And the thing that really escalated all that was COVID. So once COVID hit, they were stuck at home and they were no longer having access to their therapies. They started regressing. And then with the regressions due to like routine change, they, they got kind of like really dysregulated and then you lose the therapies. So on top of that, you couldn't handle the situation because there's no therapies. So that was kind of like the thing that ultimately inspired Autism Wish because I figured there has to be a way to be able to help these families. That's kind of easier, low maintenance. It doesn't require going in. And so my husband and I were thinking, well, why don't we put something together where kids and parents can get the resources they need to try to mimic therapy at home? So like occupational therapy, you just need a lot of fine motor toys, things like that. So we created Autism Wish as a way to connect sponsors with autistic children so that they can donate these toys and other items to help them kind of recreate therapy at home. And that's really in a short blurb, how all of that kind of came together. There's so much though. <laughs> I love that. You take me right back to season two. We had a lady on called Dr. Erin Stagner and she's known over there in America as the special needs specialist. And she's very much like you. Um, it was a beautiful synchronicity actually, because her child with autism was exactly the same age as my child with autism. We had no idea before we pressed that record button. But she went into the special needs specialist role, probably like your autism wish, because, you know, there wasn't enough resources there. And that's how hers come about. I was going to ask, do you have a diagnosis of autism or just similar things? So that's funny. Um, my kids, when they were diagnosed with autism, um, their pediatrician, I started talking to them because I was like, I can relate to a lot of these things. And so she brought up potentially like the broader autism phenotype. I don't know if you've heard of that, it's BAP. It's basically, um, so when it comes to autism, what they tend to do is they diagnose based off of the amount of resources or support that you need. So you can have the symptoms, but essentially if you are able to self-accommodate sufficiently, they don't count it or classify it as autism. They would say like BAP, which is kind of like you have the traits, but not enough of the impact to your everyday life that it would constitute autism. So she kind of implied that that's probably what it is for me because I do have a lot of the sensory stuff. Um, my husband always makes fun of me because when I go to sleep, I go to sleep with a weighted blanket and I go to sleep with noise canceling headsets. I have my mask and then I have like a cocoon of pillows around me. So he always laughs and says, the only thing you can see is like my nose so I can breathe. 
<laughs> we must look matching, I'm sure, because I have like a little nest of pillows. The weight of blanket yeah. was a bit much. I had too many hot flushes in that. But I do listen with headphones, so I can't hear anything else. Yeah. I have a nice cooling weighted blanket. So I, I prepared for that. <laughs> Just going to write that down. Research cooling weighted blanket. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are nice. They are nice. But I, I definitely related to a lot of things. So like I actually kind of suspect I'm trying to see if I can get an evaluation, which is a lot harder to do as an adult. That's another limitation that I have found that's definitely problematic. I find it. I, I think there must be such a big difference between the UK and the USA because your girls, are they two and three? Yes. And they've been diagnosed already. We're over here. Yes. Hardly any girls. Wait. Yeah. And hardly any girls are diagnosed and they don't really do anything until they're like four or six, you know, and yes. then in girls, you know, we mirror, you know, sort of do that whole peer pressure thing and we act a certain way and dress a certain way. And so very few female diagnoses here in the UK. You know, I, I will just tell you flat out, a really big part of the inspiration for the Embracing Autism podcast was the UK because I was in a lot of parenting groups on Facebook and I kept hearing a lot of questions over and over again. And initially there were questions that I had when I started, but after a while you, you kind of become a pro, you know, you know how to do it at some point. And I realized that everybody who was talking to me, who was from the UK, they were like talking about how they have all these delays in getting a diagnosis. And a lot of them saying like they couldn't get one till they were at least five or something like that. Over here, when you go to the pediatrician, your normal pediatrician, you now get a screening at 18 months old. And once you're screened at 18 months, if you're flagged, you are referred. So my daughter, my second daughter, she actually had her first evaluation at 12 months old. Um, and they said that she had all the red flags, but they're just not allowed to diagnose until they're at least 18 months old. So then she went for a second evaluation at 20 months old, and that's when she got her diagnosis. And then my first daughter got diagnosed at 20 mo 21 months old. So it's, it's a lot um, younger over here. It's more accessible in that sense. Yeah, I find it. Yeah, I, I just felt kind of fabulous, fascinating. Such a contrast because I said like when our son started school at four, his personality seriously changed, you know, going into that sort of setting and that expectations and different personalities and there's moving around and things like that. But the school would not listen. There was just thought, you know, neurotic mother and all through primary school from year R for reception right through to year six. If I had a suspicion it was always like, I'm writing this referral because the mother says so kind of thing. You know, I'm doing this on behalf of the mother. Mm -hmm. And it was only when he went to secondary school that after eight years of chasing for a diagnosis or an answer or help, after eight years, he was diagnosed within eight months. But that yeah. was private. It wasn't on the National Health Service. It was private because in the primary school here, I'm not sure how it is in the US, but here in primary school, you have one class and you've got like your name on the drawer, your name above the peg. You don't move classes. You have one teacher. They do all your lessons. And then you go to secondary school and every 40 to 50 minutes, you're moving class, different teacher, nothing's labeled, very sensory mm -hmm. overload of everyone getting angry. And it was just really apparent, like, you know, this neurotic mother of eight years actually had a point. And it's just like, yeah. you know, and it was hard because I know we spoke off air that around the time, of getting ready to go to secondary school there was a lot of hormones shall we say Leah you know because he's 
a male, so between nine and 12 was a hormonal time, a time of change. But around the age of 11 to 12, he was diagnosed. And there was like this emotional crisis that came up with that. And it was really difficult, but now he's 15 and the most, I'm not biased, <laughs> um, but he's just the most amazing child. You know, thank God I did fight for him, but you don't seem to have that fight over there, which is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, what is going on is that like the more recent research is starting to show how important early intervention is for the outcome in autism. So a lot of research is now starting to support that the sooner you can get an autistic child into services, the better their chances are for being like independent later on. So that's why there's been like more of a push over here to try to get the diagnosis early because the way they see it is if you diagnose somebody autistic and then they're not autistic, well, worst case scenario, they get these services and then they lose their diagnosis and it was not really a big deal. But if you miss somebody who is autistic and then they don't get services until they're like eight, nine, 10, 11, then you missed on this huge window of learning opportunity. So that's why they push for younger now. I think it's brilliant. But I was just thinking like when our son went through the diagnosis, well, the, you know, the testing as we do it here, it was so much of it was verbal. So how were they testing someone at 12 months? So I actually have an episode on my podcast where we go over in detail everything that they do or, or what they look for. But for younger kids, um, so a lot of it is observation to like social behavior, for example. So one of the things that they'll do is they will try to engage with the child and see if they engage back. They'll try to point to something and see if they go and look at it. Um, they will see if like when they try to interact with the child, do they give them eye contact? Do they not? Do they acknowledge their name being called? Do they do pretend play? So one of the things is they'll set out like um, a tea party or something like that. And then they'll say like, oh, let's play tea party. And they're like, how do they play with the food? Do they pretend like they're drinking the tea or do they just kind of chew on the cup and throw it, you know? So there's like lots of things that you can do to um, kind of feel that out. And it's actually really interesting. Um, I'll give you a little sneak peek here. Uh, we just <laughs> recorded an episode for our podcast that hasn't released yet. And in that, we were talking about the sense of smell. And there's a study that recently came out that they have found that you can diagnose autism with 80% accuracy just by seeing how kids respond to smell. So they did a test where they put like really strong smells that were like sweet smelling like shampoo and then they did ones that were terrible like like rotting fish and they could see that neurotypical kids could adjust they would adjust their breathing pattern to like breathe out of their mouth and they would breathe like more shallow so they wouldn't have to smell it but the autistic kids didn't change their breathing pattern at all and they basically said that they're now considering doing that test in infants and they're saying if if it works the same way which they suspect it will they think that they'll be able to screen for autism basically with like newborns. That's fascinating. I was thinking, <laughs> having recently had COVID for the second time, I've got no sense of smell or taste. So now I'm thinking, how would that work? Because obviously we're coming out of COVID and things like that. But our son, I found it fascinating, but our son's the opposite. Like he's really sensitive to smell. And so like yeah. the other day, I mean, I can't smell anything at the moment, so I could be burning the house down there, if I'm honest. But we're in the three-story house, and he'd come down go, Mum, the house stinks of garlic. And I was like, right in front of it, and I was like, does it? And my husband's like, I can't smell it, but he could. So is that another thing? Like, they've got like, mm -hmm. almost 
over so someone might not recognize it but then you know our son is so sensitive to smell well I say that his room stinks he doesn't seem to be aware of that but <laughs> <laughs> it's just smells that bother them in particular so he okay. might be okay with that smell <laughs> yeah he yeah seems to I've, be heard, <laughs> I've heard of some autistic individuals that can smell ants like there is a story that I read from somebody that they basically were going to school and they would refuse to go into the classroom during the springtime and they couldn't figure out why. And it turned out that during the spring, ants were crawling around the windowsill coming in and he could smell them and it was too much for him. So that was why he was refusing. So once they took care of the ants, he was able to go in. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> is it? Is it? I mean, they're really, they are like such unique skills it's why they've survived hundreds and thousands of years in evolution isn't it because like the things my son teaches us you know we've, yeah, we've got four children but he teaches us so much because he um I think the most refreshing part of him is there's no gray area it's black and white and it's so refreshing like so often I'll ask my husband's opinion and then be like mm, maybe and then I'll, go, I'll just go to my son and go what do you think and he's absolutely clear and I love that. He's, he's kind of like what I used to be like when I was younger. You know, you try and people please. And he doesn't have that. He either likes you or he doesn't like you. <laughs> and he just tells yeah. it as it is. And I love that. You know, whether we have children like little awkward, should I say it, should I not? He's just like right down the line. And I think yeah. I'd love the whole human race to be like that. It saves so much time. I, I mean, honestly, I'm the same way. Like growing up, I was always like really blunt and stuff, but there's like a huge downside to that is that the world is not ready or prepared for that. I lost a lot of friends because I would tell them just like the honest truth. I eventually learned as many girls do to take social cues. And then eventually I was like, okay, I can't say the truth because they're going to react this way. But it was actually like really detrimental to my social circle growing up. So I kind of, I don't have many friends and the one friend that I do have is also just as blunt as me. So it works out really great. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Yeah. So obviously I'm very intrigued being the mother of a child with autism, but like, if we go back to the start of the show when I was reading out your bio, it's amazing. Like you've got a master specializing in human factor psychology, you're user experience researcher, you know, you run a podcast, but your positive changes story is that you have these learning disabilities. So yeah. obviously, like we're saying, there's absolute skills and attributes that come from having autism. You discovered, you know, that you, I love this, that you weren't different, you were unique. And I love that. What kind of tips and tools did you use? Can people use to really tap into the brilliance? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I would say is don't underestimate yourself. So it's really like a change of mindset. And that's where I feel like the diagnosis really helps. So if somebody does struggle and they don't have a diagnosis, the first thing I would say is try to seek out some sort of diagnosis just in case to see if that explains it. Because to me, th this is a metaphor that I use very frequently because it impacted me so much. Um, but I remember reading about a story um, it's supposed to be a quote attributed, I think, to Albert Einstein. I don't know if he actually said it, um, but it's basically said that like, if you always judge a fish by its capability of climbing a tree, the fish will grow up to always think it is dumb. And so I felt like that's exactly how I felt because then it goes on to say, but if you basically judge a fish by its ability to swim, then that fish will know how like amazing it is essentially. So for me, 
that that's kind of where that positive mindset changed where like once I had the diagnosis, I had been basically be a been a fish being tested on my ability to climb a tree. And because I couldn't and everyone else was a bear and everyone was climbing like great, I just looked up at them and I'm like, why can't I do this? This is so frustrating. Why, like, why can't I do this? And so once that diagnosis came into place, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm just a really great swimmer. Why am I trying to climb this tree? So then I learned like, I have no interest in the tree. I'm gonna go over here and swim. And then swimming came super naturally. So like, that's something that I thrived in, metaphorical swimming, of course. Um, so like, that was like one of the big things to me is like positive change in your mindset and pursuing that kind of like, just changing how you think about things and changing your perspective. And then on top of that, because I had like executive dysfunction and things like that, I felt that having tools to help me organize myself was really helpful. So one of the apps that I used is the um, Microsoft to-do app and it's a free app, but it basically is like a to-do list that you can put together, but you can organize it by like category. You can even add people to it. So like sometimes if I have things, I'll tag my husband in it so he can like keep me accountable and things like that. Um, and then I use Google calendars a lot. I schedule everything. If it's not on the schedule, I simply will not remember. Um, so I make sure that I constantly am using a schedule with like an alert system. So those are like a couple of things that helped. See, I love that, but I'm thinking like over here, maybe it's different again, that our son for one could really, really do with an app like that, but they're not allowed mobile phones in schools. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, because I love Google Calendar. Oh. Yeah, but I'm just thinking like, what, what could he use? Or what could teenagers that might so, be in where you are, you know, when they can't use a you mobile? Could, you could, I mean, I don't know how the system works over there. Over here, we have like an IEP, which is like their individualized accommodations. And over here, you have the option to basically as a parent advocate for the right for them to have a cell phone or something like that, as if it's like, for an accommodation to assist them with their disability. I don't know if you guys have something equivalent to that over there though. No, they're not allowed mobile phones, smartwatches, nothing. You're literally that one of 30 mentality. Really? A, not yeah, even yeah. as an accommodation? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the next best thing would be then like a paper planner or something like that, because yeah. that's, you can keep yourself organized that way. But I feel like it's harder if you don't have an alert system. Yeah, and it's a shame. I mean, he's in mainstream schools, so and maybe it's different elsewhere, but he's in a mainstream school and they can't have mobiles, smartwatches, things like that. I mean, I'm not the only parent. There's people that you know die children with diabetes and they've sort of challenged it, they need the alarms to test the sugar. And it's just like, no, yeah. one rule wow. fits all. And it's like, oh, I wish this education system was different. <laughs> that seems like it's a little bit discriminatory against those with disabilities in a sense. Oh yeah, I've had those conversations many a time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. He gets um, detentions and exclusions for being too chatty. And I was just like, he's got ADHD. What do you think he's going to do? But you know, if he sat there, maybe if you put him in a wheelchair, they wouldn't have done it. And I was like, this absolutely, you're punishing his personality. And I love his outburst yeah. and conversation. He brightens my every day. But yeah, he's being discriminated a lot. And, and see these accommodations, like you mentioned a wheelchair, it's no different for somebody with autism to need a device than yeah. it is for somebody who can't walk to need a wheelchair. So like you wouldn't say no to a wheelchair. It's just inhumane. So I'll, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Oh, yeah, pleasure. No, that's what I've sort of compared it to. Like, you know, people 
have physical needs but he's just more sort of like you know motor emotional sort of things but no it has been yeah. a real battle but it sounds not easy I'm sure because obviously there's a lot of emotion when you're raising children and you know something's not quite you know like another sibling or things like that but it seems less of a battle over there you know eight years it took me and even after I got yeah. the diagnosis it's only really been in the last probably four years that things have gone into place and I haven't yeah. had to challenge them and, and honestly that's you know that, that is why I said like that you guys really did inspire the podcast because I had autism wish and it is a national resource, so that's only available to the U.S. because of shipping costs and things like that. But I saw so many stories from the U.K., and I was like, I have to make something that's accessible to them, too. And so that was actually the inspiration behind the podcast. Yeah, I find it fascinating. So people, whether it's like, you know, a teenager living with autism or just like really struggling to, you know, keep up with schoolwork or as a parent and they suspect their child has autism or something like that. What one positive change would you recommend they made today? For those who suspect? For anyone that just has some no, autism somewhere on their radar, whether it's a suspicion, you know. Yeah. So I think that for parents, um, one positive change that I would say is if you could try to create like your own social network and that doesn't need to be something like, oh, a best friend or something like that. But I think that a lot of times an autism diagnosis, whether it's for yourself or for your children, ends up being very isolating. And there's a lot of consequences to that. I mean, they, they put people in solitary confinement in prison for a reason, and you don't want to basically do that to yourself. So I think that that is really important, and it's usually understated. People don't realize that they can deal with more if you do have a support system. And I know that it's hard to find um, so I, I understand that, but nowadays there's more online stuff. Um, so maybe joining an online support group, like I, I have an online support group we just met yesterday. Um, if there's something that you can accommodate in your schedule, if there's like a local mom's day out for parents of kids with disabilities or something like that, just try to reach out and get involved in your community because that's going to go a long way and like helping you with your mental health, which will then help you parent better and have more patience when these like outbursts and difficult behaviors happen I love that the support network comes up so often and it doesn't matter what the story is whether it, they're going through grief like depression or other mental health or like recovering from loss of health or physical injury it is support network I mean I'm all for like self-care self-love self-empowerment but sometimes it's good to, you know just to bounce your ideas and feel heard by others yeah, I think it's really important because I feel like we tend to work on an empty battery and we don't re we don't refuel it. So that social system, that support system is what helps you get that battery full again. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of support, bless you, you've got a freebie for the listeners today. So tell us about that. Um, so I have something called an, a student introduction portfolio, and it doesn't have to be just for students. It can be like for churches or anywhere where you basically are dropping off your child and 
they need maybe a little understanding of your child. And so what it is, is a PDF file. It's about seven pages or so. And it basically introduces the caregiver to your child and humanizes them. So if it's at school and they just know, oh, your child is autistic, a lot of times there's assumptions placed on that label. So this is a way to make it so that the teacher doesn't see your child as a diagnosis. It sees them as a person. So on this document, you can put a little bit about what are their likes? What are their dislikes? What are some things they're really good at? What are some books they like to read? Things like that. And then you can also put what are things that they're oversensitive to, undersensitive to? How do they prefer to communicate? And so that's basically a document that you can fill out, give to your teacher and have them pass to other teachers or caregivers. And then they'll have a better idea of how to kind of like accommodate your child. It's brilliant. I think you'd even use it just to have a conversation with your child, couldn't you? Just to get to know them a bit better so they understand themselves a bit more, maybe. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think of that. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah. So to check out the freebie, just enter www.autismwish.org. Yes. And then you just sign up to the newsletter on that page. There's a subscribe page. As soon as you sign up, it's going to send it to your inbox within five minutes. Fabulous. And then you've got the podcast, Embracing Autism. Where can they find that? That is found everywhere you can hear podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> All over the world. <laughs> yes. Oh, Leah Cave, I've absolutely loved this. I love a fellow mum. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kick book from all online book retailers or from shellyfknight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight, Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing. <laughs>